I don't know if you ever think about um, what would have been like if Jesus actually didn't come 2,000 years ago, but he came today. I don't know if you ever think that question through, like what would it be like if he, you know, would he drive a car? Would he have a phone? I remember um, in Tassie, the church I went to, we um, did these uh, plays for schools um, at Christmas time, and uh, one year, or for a few years, we had this uh, nativity play that we would do, and uh, the play was all about what would happen if Jesus was born today. So it was like he wasn't born in a stable, he was born in a car parking lot, and um, these uh, magi travelled, you know, and they're driving along and they see this star, and, and so we, as a youth, we would film all these various clips and, and, uh, and then put it up on the screen and then, then have this live scenes as well and back to a clip. And um, so I remember we drive to the towns of Hobart and um, one, one, uh, one car would be in front and that had this big torch just shining out the back being a star and the other guy's like, oh, look, let's follow that. <laughs> and uh, I just remember one of the greatest scenes, <laughs> just still stuck in my memory, this big uh, guy, his name's Dave, dressed up as an angel and uh, the scene with the shepherds, right? So we, we went out and found this random flock of sheep just out in the, out in the bush a bit. <laughs> There's this scene of this guy running down a hill in a big white gown and these sheep just not knowing what is going on and running away. And uh, yes, I don't think it would have happened quite like that if Jesus came today. But it does make you think, what would it be like if he came today? And I think in some ways that's a helpful question to ask because Often the things and the situations that we read in the Bible can seem distant, can seem like, oh, what are these questions or things about? But actually, there's a real relevance and importance to the faith and to Christianity today. And um, we're going through Mark chapter 12. So if you've got your Bibles, you can uh, turn there. And um, we're in this sort of um, section um, where Jesus is being challenged. He's having a number of questions come to him. And I think about this section of the Bible, and I think, if these questions were to come today, what would be the questions that people would ask Jesus today? So he's had his authority challenged already. They've come and said to him, should we pay taxes to Caesar? These aren't really questions that would be asked today, but I thought, what are the controversial questions that we ask today? And one of them, actually, um, that I think about is we're going to be discussing tonight, and it's, was the world created in seven days? If you wanted to stump someone, like if you were trying to trap Jesus... You try and stack the crowd, you try and ask that question, or maybe another controversial, controversial question, what about women in leadership? Or um, another one, what about gay marriage? And if you were to ask those questions, you know, already in the crowd, you're like, ooh, what's he going to say? <laughs> and this is what was happening, right? We, we don't think about, you know, challenging some, someone's authority as they did then. We don't think about paying taxes to Caesar, and we don't think about as we're going to look in this passage now, about this question of the resurrection. So let me read to you here from uh, verse 18 of Mark 12. It says this, And Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. 
In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Now, this is the first time um, that we've seen, and the only time actually in the Gospel of Mark, uh, this group of people called the Sadducees. Um, they haven't um, yeah, been on the stage before, so to speak, but they come with this question. And as it says there, there was a few distinctives about this group. One was that they did not believe in the resurrection. And if you read later on in Acts, um, there's a, a fascinating uh, situation there where Paul... Um, basically uh, breaks this uh, Sanhedrin in two by um, proclaiming the resurrection of the dead and the Sadducees and the Pharisees just had this really violent sort of argument over Paul. Um, But it also says there in that passage in Acts that they don't believe in angels or spirits. So kind of a unique sort of group of people. I don't know how far you get today in the faith, you know, (laughs) what kind of uh, churches would embrace you in that way. But there was this group back then, the Sadducees who were believing these things. No resurrection, no angels, no spirits. That's what they believed. And one of the other distinctive things about the Sadducees is that out of the entire Old Testament, they didn't have the New Testament at that point in time, out of the entire Old Testament, they only considered five books authoritative. And that were the first five books, the Pentateuch or the Torah. So they had these kind of funny, funny quirks um, about them. And uh, so they come to Jesus and they have this hypothetical question. And um, they put it in the the context of um, this teaching uh, from Moses, which says that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, this was, um, in the ancient world, very important to have the legacy of the line continue, to have the family name not snuffed out. You see it often reoccurring um, as a theme throughout Um, the Old Testament. You see David's lineage, um, that there's always someone on the throne of David, um, and that's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But the the offspring and the heritage um, of a person was so important that if I were to die, my brother would have to come and through my wife have offspring. Fortunately, he doesn't because I don't live in those days. (laughs) And also, I already have children. But you see what I'm saying. So this is what they're, they're sort of um, looking at, this, uh, this law. And so they bring this hypothetical question, and essentially they say, all right, so this one guy, he has a wife, and there's seven brothers, and the wife dies, he leaves no children, so the second brother becomes married, they try, no children, he dies, and it just keeps playing on, the third one dies, no children, fourth, fifth, I don't know why they chose seven They could have chose 12, maybe three, but they chose seven. And they said, all seven die. Then at the resurrection, whose wife is um, this woman uh, going to be? And uh, it's interesting, I was reflecting about this. It's such a hypothetical question. I don't know if this has ever happened in the history of the world. I know of no case where it has. (laughs) 
But it got, me start, it got me thinking about hypothetical questions, right? I don't know if you've ever been asked a hypothetical question and someone says, oh, I've got this hypothetical for you. Not all hypothetical questions are like this one, but I thought of another question that is asked, and it's a hypothetical, and uh, it's this one. You may have been asked it or may have heard it before. And the question is this, can God create a rock so big that he cannot pick it up? What's the answer? Anyone here say yes? Anyone here say no? <laughs> oh, a controversial question. <laughs> but you see, there's these hypothetical questions, and the, the, when someone asks a question like that, there's this sort of expectation that you just put aside all the things of like, why would God want to create a rock that he can't pick up? <laughs> I mean, he does create rocks, but, you know, why does he need to create one that he can't pick up? Or what, what purpose of benefit is this, you know? Not important, answer the hypothetical question, you know? And this is sort of um, what you can see the Sadducees doing here. Um, but if you think about this, this hypothetical question of, um, of the rock, for example, is trying to target something deeper And the thing that that question is trying to target is this. It's trying to say, if God is all-powerful and can do anything, clearly there's something that he can't do. Because either he can create a rock that he can't pick up, and therefore there's something that he can't actually pick up and he can't do, so he's not all-powerful, or he can't actually create that rock, and therefore there's something that he can't do. So either way, there's something God can't do. (laughs) And uh, that's what that hypothetical question is trying to get at. And the Sadducees do a similar thing. With the rock, what I've reflected on that is this. Do you know that there are actually quite a few things that God can't do and that the Bible tells us he can't do? He can't sin. He can't lie. He can't break his promises. And do you know what I believe? He can't create a rock so big that he can't pick it up. And I lose no sleep over that at night. I'm not, I'm not thinking, oh, Lord, I need you to be able to create a rock so big that you can't pick up. Without that, I can't believe in you. No way. I don't need that. I don't think we need that for faith. And this is the sort of the, the context of this question, I suppose, that the Sadducees are asking, this hypothetical trying to get at something deeper, and it's the resurrection. It's trying to ask the question, Is the resurrection actually true? Because if this is true, then what would happen in this scenario? How would this woman be married to seven people? That would be absolutely absurd. So, um, Jesus then responds like this. And um, he answers their question and he says, straight up, is this not the reason that you are in error, that you are mistaken? And then he goes on and he says two things that they do not know. You do not know the scriptures and you do not know the power of God. And he goes on, I'll come back to those uh, later on, and he, he explains them something that they do not understand. And he says this, in the resurrection there will be no marriage. No one will be given in marriage, no one will be taken in marriage. It's not going to be, exist because they'll be like the angels. And um, if you think about the angels, they never die. And in the resurrection, we will never be hurt by the second death, um, the scriptures tell us. You think about it as well, and that's, it's a strange thing, like it kind of bends your mind, like how am I able to be married to someone now and not married, you know, in the life to come? Like that's a strange thing. 
But I want you to think about it like this. Think about an angel. Think about Michael the archangel. Think about Gabriel. Did you ever think about those angels ever being married? Do you ever think about Michael having a wife, a beautiful angel wife? And he, you know, rides out and, you know, he returns home from his archangel duties, you know, overseeing all the, and his wife says, oh, Michael, that was beautiful the way you did that. No, (laughs) it's crazy. And think of it like that. We're going to be like the angels. To think of an angel with a wife, it's crazy. To think of you with a husband or a wife in the resurrection, it's going to be crazy as well. You'll be like an angel in that sense. It will be strange for you to have a wife. You won't need that sort of fulfillment or, or that, um, yeah, the place of marriage there. So Jesus unpacks that. And then he gets on and he comes to the point of the resurrection. And uh, he says this, As for the dead being raised, as for the resurrection, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And uh, honestly, for the longest time I, I, I wrestled with this, I'm like, I don't understand how that shuts down this argument. <laughs> Why does someone saying, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob prove that there's a resurrection? And um, what I've come to see is this. It's just interesting as well that um, remember that the Sadducees only considered the Pentateuch, the first five books, authoritative, and that's where Jesus takes this from. It's from um, uh, the book of Exodus. Um, But when Jesus declares that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's essentially saying this, I am currently the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, not I once was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, but they're now, now dead. They no longer exist, but these people are still in existence today, and I am their God today. It's not like you die, bang, and the end. No, I, and he said this to Moses, generations after all these men had rested with their fathers, as the Old Testament would say. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Currently, these people are still in existence. There is a resurrection And Jesus goes on and he he wraps up and says, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You were quite wrong. And I wanted to hone in on this word. uh, In my translation, it uses the word wrong. And uh, this word is actually um, twice in this passage. It's also Jesus uses it in verse 24. He says, is not this the reason you were wrong? The word wrong. It might be mistaken or something else in your translation. But the Greek word um, is planaste. And um, this word um, is translated in several ways. Um, so in the NIV, it translates this word as error, to be deceived, uh, to be misled, to go astray, to wander off, to be deluded, to be mistaken. All of these words are trying to capture the essence of this word planaste, right? And um, it's not a very nice thing, you know, if you say to someone, you're deluded. You've wandered off. You've gone astray. That's what Jesus has said to these people. And sometimes um, it doesn't quite capture this. Like uh, my translation says, is not this the reason you were wrong? This verb, it's, um, and 
Man, I've learned a lot about the English language by studying Greek at Bible college, I tell you that. <laughs> my, my English, like when I was through high school, I was like, now what's a verb? The noun is the person, place and thing, you know, and then I was doing Greek, I was like, oh, this is blowing my mind right now, trying to do this in another language. But my English has improved a lot, my understanding of our own language, because I've had to study another language. Anyway, all that to say, this verb is in the passive form, right? Okay? And I had to learn what the difference between active and passive form of a verb is. So I can hit someone, that's active, and I can be hit, that's passive. So when you're active, you're doing the action. When it's passive, the action is being done to you. You understand the difference? Yep, good. Now you don't have to go and study Greek. (laughs) This is a passive verb. So it's saying, you have been deceived. You have been deluded. You have gone astray. You haven't deceived someone else. You haven't deluded someone else. You haven't led someone else astray. You yourselves have had it happen to you. And then the question is this. Who deceived them? Who deceived these Sadducees? How were they deceived? doesn't tell us. Was some other group, were the Pharisees able to get in there and just deceive these people in a really smart, sly way? I don't think so. Was it Satan? Perhaps he had some involvement in it. But do you know the person who I think deceived them? It was themselves. And self-deception, brothers and sisters, is a very subtle, very hard to pick up, and very, very dangerous thing in general, but in the Christian faith as well. Very dangerous. And these people have stumbled into a self-deception. And it's brought them to this place where they have come to something as foundational as a resurrection, about which Paul said, if Christ has not been raised, you are still dead in your sins. You are still dead in your sins. Something that foundational. If there is no resurrection, we are dead in our sins. These people were denying the truth of it. And they were genuine, but self-deceived. And I want you to ask yourself this question today. Is it possible for myself to be deceived like these Sadducees were? You might say straight up, no, no, no. I know the resurrection's true. Good. (laughs) Good. This is good. But what about, was the world made in seven days? What about women in teaching and leadership? What would you say about that? What about homosexuality? Is it possible that you have been deceived? I don't know. Have I been deceived? This is what we need to ask. And do you know how we avoid the error of being deceived? It says right here. This is the reason you're wrong or you've been deceived or you've been led astray. Two things. You know, neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. And this, brothers and sisters, is a question I want to bring up front and center to each of you today. Do you know the Scriptures? Do you know in your hearts the power of God? Because if you don't, 
<laughs> and the extent to which you do. But if you don't, then it's possible you can be led astray, or you currently are. Do not be deceived. I um, just a couple of Saturdays ago was celebrating um, with my sister-in-law her 30th birthday. We were at a cafe in Blackburn. And um, they announced actually that uh, she was pregnant with their first child as well at the same time, which was really such a wonderful time. Anyway, before everyone arrived, Dawny and I got there first. We were quite impressed, pretty chuffed at ourselves. Three kids, no one else had any kids, and we got there first. Anyway, so we were sitting down in the restaurant and just chatting with the waiters, and I got chatting with this one guy, and he's, he's sort of talking away about how he used to own a, uh, manage a restaurant in Bulleen, and, okay, cool, cool. And, and then he said, yeah, I'm actually Serbian. And I was like, oh, great. <laughs> so I said to him, Serbian Orthodox, right? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I said, do you go to church? He said, yeah, I go to a church in Greensboro. Oh, really? We go to churches in Eltham? He's like, oh, yeah, I think I might know the one. And anyway, so we were chatting away. And um, when he saw that I started taking interest in, in things of faith and stuff, he said this to me at one point. He said, you know what? I know all the Bible, all the Quran, all those other Gospels, everything. I know it all. And I was like, really? <laughs> and in my heart, I was like, I'm sorry, I just don't believe you. <laughs> Straight up. And uh, so I went to challenge him on this. And I said, um, so do you know the parable about the sower? And I uh, thought of that because it's a great parable to talk about the gospel and the word of God being sown. And uh, I said, do you know the parable of the sower? Um, he was already talking though, you know, Serbian talking on top and just cut, cut through and uh, the conversation uh, moved along. But I thought, wow, that was a massive claim just there. I know all the Bible, I know all the Quran, and I know all the Gospels, like think uh, Da Vinci Code, Dan Brown, you know, the Apocrypha, that sort of thing. Those are the things I think he was referring to. I'm like, man, do you know what you just said? That you know all of that back to front? Man, I would not say that even about one of those books, you know? Like, how, how can you say that? And I want you to consider your own lives when you ask this question of yourselves, do you know the Scriptures? Do you think of yourself and say, yeah, I know it. I know it. I've read it. I've read the whole Bible. Or, man, I've studied it. I've been to Bible college. I've listened to sermons my whole life and I'm now in my you know, retired years. I want you just to consider and step back before jumping to saying that you know something. There's a great proverb, um, it's Proverbs 26, verse 12, it says this, Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for this person. It can come that we have a blind arrogance in this area, that we can say, yeah, I know this stuff, where we compare ourselves to others. This may have been what happened in this guy's, you know, at the cafe. He might have thought, oh, man, this guy probably doesn't know much about Christianity or the Bible or stuff. And he just thought, probably compared to you, I know a lot, you know. And you can look that direction at other people around you and like, yeah, man, at my small group, man, I'm clearly the one who knows the Bible. Be careful. Be careful if that thought starts to enter your heart, lest you stumble there and you become blind and you say, yes, I know, I know, I know. And yet you're not looking the other way and looking at all that you don't know. 
Watch where you focus. Jesus, he said this. It's interesting. Um, As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? It's interesting how he posed the question. Have you not read? Like, I'm sure you would have. (laughs) I'm expecting you would have. And if you have, it sounds like you haven't if there's no resurrection. Have you not read? And this is another interesting part of knowing the Scripture. Because we can know the Bible. We can know it in the sense of, yes, I know the parable of the sower. I know this story. I know this gospel. I know this passage. But there's another sense in which we can know it. And it's a sense of understanding it. So you can know the parable, but that doesn't mean that you know the meaning of it. Do you get the difference? Knowing just factually what it is, you can recount it, you can, you know, in an exam condition, you can churn it out and say, yep, this is what it is. But then understanding the meaning of it is knowing it even more. James says it in this way. I'll just read to you from James chapter 1, um, verse 22 and following. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks looks at himself, and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Have you ever heard the words of this book? Have you ever acted on the words of this book? Do not be deceived. If you hear only, you're looking at this like a mirror walking away and forgetting what you look like, you've got to look at it and act on it and say, Lord, what's going on in my heart and my life that I need to change? And then you've got to go and do it. You've got to go and do it. Otherwise, you are falling into self-deception. It's amazing that we can deceive ourselves. Like if you think about it, you know, you play a board game and you might try and deceive someone else while you're playing the board game. But if you're playing a board game and you try and deceive yourself while you're playing it, that's pretty difficult. You've got to have skill. But it is possible to be self-deceived. So there's this one extreme where we can go and we can say, yes, I know the Scriptures, when actually the reality is that we don't. There's another extreme where we can go on, which is where we say, I don't know the Scriptures. And we get stuck there as well. I'm never going to know. I'm never going to grow. It's too hard. It's too overwhelming. This is a big book. How am I ever going to know it? How am I going to have the time? And I want to encourage you today, wherever you're at, you might be in either one of these extremes, but to not get stuck where you are. If you're feeling guilt, may it lead you to repentance. Don't get stuck on guilt. Guilt is there to lead to repentance. But if the Holy Spirit is convicting you, move, move in, move into knowing the Scriptures. 
Because it's not only for avoiding error that we need to know this, although this is what the passage in Mark is talking about. It's avoiding error. But it's also to receive blessing, like James was talking about. It refines us and changes us. He will be blessed by his doing when we hear and act. So um, let me read this passage um, just from Romans 12.3, which is a good, helpful balance between these two extremes. It says this, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think how? With sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but with sober judgment. And as you do that and you seek to grow in your knowledge of the Scriptures, and consider that passage from James. He said at one point, he used the word perseveres in doing this perseveres in looking into it intently, into that mirror. If you want to know the Scriptures, it's just not going to be a burst. It's not going to happen overnight. It's going to be a thing of perseverance through your entire life. Do you want to do that? I hope you do. (laughs) I want to, and I aspire towards that, and I'm growing in it. Now, the other thing that Jesus said um, from our passage in Mark is this, know the Scriptures and then know the power of God. And these two are inextricably linked. We know many passages in the Bible, um, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed. Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is living and active. You can know all of this, you can even understand its meaning, and it can still be dead. Because there's something that brings this to life. There's many places where this is preached and it's dead. There's many places where this is read and it's dead. But if you want this to be living to you, if you want to see the power of God made manifest through His Word in your life, you're going to have to seek that out. And I want to give you an example of someone who did that. And um, it's Abraham, actually, who also appears in our passage. And I'm going to read briefly from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. Um, says this, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. As I reflected on that, I was thinking, that's an amazing thing, that God gave Isaac to Abraham in a miraculous way. He received this son that he desired so much and he loved him. He was so endeared towards his son Isaac. And then the Lord said to him, I want you now to offer him up as a sacrifice for me. Kill him, put him to death. But as this passage has just said, before God asked Abraham to kill Isaac as an offering, to sacrifice him, God has said, I will make you into a great nation through your son Isaac. What's going through Abraham's head? How can you make a great nation out of this son who is dead? You see the conundrum. Like, how does that even work? And so the author of Hebrews said, Abraham reconciled in his heart that if I kill him, God can raise him back from the dead. That's what Abraham believed. That's what enabled him. He wasn't thinking, oh, yes, I will kill Isaac and the Lord will give me another son. No, because God had said to him through Isaac, That's the way your offspring is going to come. 
not through Ishmael, not through another son that I might give you. No, it's through this one, and I want you now to put him to death. And Abraham's like, all right. And the only way back from death is what? Resurrection, raised to life. And so Abraham believed that God was going to raise Isaac back from the dead, and he'd resolved that within himself. And as the author of Hebrews says, Figuratively speaking, he did receive him back from the dead. He was as good as dead to Abraham, inwardly. That is amazing. That is the power of God there. And how did it happen? It was by believing in what God had said. Abraham was unwavering. He believed that God was even through death. He said, you can kill this, but God is going to see this promise fulfilled that says, through Isaac will my offspring be reckoned. And he trusted and then in that saw the power of God break forth and figuratively speaking received his son back from the dead. Faith is what brings alive the word of God that makes it manifest in power. You can know it. You can grow in understanding the meaning of it. But just because you understand and you comprehend what something means doesn't mean that it amounts to much in your life, necessarily. It can, but it might not. It's by believing comes to life. Then the scripture that has been God-breathed, we see that it is living and active. And it's this interesting thing from the theme of offspring that keeps coming through here that... Even in the Sadducees' question, they were asking about offspring there. The wife had no offspring throughout that whole thing. And in Abraham, it's about offspring. Through Isaac will the offspring be reckoned. And today, Paul has taught us through the New Testament that we are children of Abraham. If we walk in faith, we are his offspring it is not through a bloodline that his offspring is reckoned, but is through faith, through the bloodline of faith. And we are recipients of that today, as offspring of Abraham. But are you growing in that faith and are you seeing the power of the scripture come in your life? So this is the bottom line. Come before the Lord and ask, do you seek to know the Scriptures and do you seek to know His power? For by doing so, it will guard you against error and it will see you on the path of righteousness and life leading to everlasting in a powerful and fruitful way. I'm going to close by reading this passage um, further along in Hebrews um, from chapter 11. It says this, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith, these men, they saw the power of God made manifest, these men and women. It was through faith that they did these things. They conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of the fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness. Does anyone here feel weak today? 
They became mighty in war. They put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were stoned in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in caves, deserts, mountains, dens, all these places of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God has provided something better for us, for you, for me, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with waste, <laughs> run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that it's by often just doing simple things that we know are good and right, that we avoid error, that we avoid the things something so foundational as a resurrection can be questioned, Lord. And it is so important in this day and age for us to, to avoid error. Lord, we read how in the later times there will be increase of evil, wickedness, deception. And Lord, we do not want to be found here among those who are deceived either by Satan, by others, or by ourselves. And Lord, for that, we need to know the Scriptures, Lord. And I thank you, God, for how each one of us do to the extent that we do thus far. Thank you, Lord, for how in Sunday schools, Lord, through parents, youth groups, sitting in church, coming along, Bible studies, Lord, we have grown and been nourished on the Word of God thus far in our faith. But Lord, I don't believe that there's a single person in here who does not continue to need to grow in their knowledge of the Scripture. In knowing it and understanding it, Father. And Lord, we also want to be a people who grow in knowing the power of God, that we see it come to life. It doesn't lie dead on a page, but it comes into our lives, Lord, and it changes us from the inside out to your glory and praise, Lord. This is what you've appointed your word and your power to do, Lord, to change us from the inside out, to see your glory made known, Father. And God permitting, we will do so. Lord, may those who are feeling weak, Lord, may they be filled with the knowledge of their strength in Jesus Christ. May those who need to put a foreign army to flight, may they be encouraged to do that, Lord. 
as Gideon did, as David fought battles, Lord. Not in the sense, Lord, as Paul says, that we rage against flesh and blood or in that way. We rage a different battle. It's a spiritual battle, Lord. But we still fight today, Father. May those of us who need to persevere through trials, hardships, difficulties, Lord, let faith arise. Thank you, God, that you will do this, that you desire it. But let faith arise, Lord, that by the testimony of running steadily, uprightly, and in the knowledge of our sonship and our adoption in you, Lord, that we would be a testament, God, to the power of God. And the people would just look at us and say, man, how can you keep walking through all that? So much rubbish in your life around you. So many difficulties that you're going through. So many trials. I cannot believe that you can continue to be on your feet. As someone said to a man who did this, curse God and die yourself. But that person did not, Lord. And we want to be counted among that number who do not. We want to be counted among that number who see the power of God come to life in our lives, Lord. Because you have purposes, Lord, here today. It is not just for 2,000 years ago that Jesus came, Lord, but it is for here today, Lord, in our lives, Lord, in this society. You grieve, Lord, for this nation. You grieve for this suburb. You, Lord, you grieve for our neighbours. And you're wanting to see a manifestation of the knowledge of your Scriptures and a knowledge of your power in our lives, Lord. You desire it, Lord. You're seeking after it and to protect us from error, Father. God, may we seek after this, Lord, that we might be able to give glory and praise unto your name, that we might be counted among those of faith, Lord, that we would accept our inheritance rightfully as the offspring and children of Abraham, the man of faith who said, I'll put my son to death, the one through whom you said you will give me offspring, because you can raise him back to life. Lord, may we be found to have that faith today, because it is possible, Lord. It's not just in the Bible, Lord. That's not why you came, not for the time of the Bible only, but it is on us of whom the fulfillment of the ages has come, Lord. And God, we look forward to the day where we will be raised again in the resurrection, when we will be like the angels and we will join in song around your throne, casting our crowns before you, Lord, and praising your glorious name, Father, for it is not by our might and it is not by our strength, but it is by your Spirit, Lord, that we are going to be able to do this. Thank you, God. Glory and praise unto your name. Amen.